Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Looking for a sewing machine that's both portable and powerful? Look no further than the legendary Sailrite Ultrafeed LSZ-1. Take it to the marina, store it on your boat. The Ultrafeed goes where you go. This high-performing, heavy-duty machine sews both in zigzag and straight stitch. The Ultrafeed can handle your toughest jobs with absolutely zero loss of power or skip stitches. It breezes through up to 10 layers of Sunbrella canvas and 8 layers of Dacron sailcloth. With the most dependable all-metal internal components, the Ultrafeed is a piece of well-engineered machinery that's built to last. Sailrite has been building the Ultrafeed for over 20 years. This tried-and-true powerhouse machine comes with a five-year limited warranty and the best customer service in the industry. The machines are assembled, fine-tuned, and tested at Sailrite's manufacturing facility by a team of highly trained technicians. Every machine is calibrated and tested before it's shipped to guarantee both smooth operation and machine quality. Take your sewing skills to the next level with the Sailrite Ultrafeed LSZ-1 sewing machine. I am on Skype with Phil Quark. Phil wrote me uh, a letter telling me that he's been sailing uh, from California down through Mexico across the Pacific and and now the boat is in Sri Lanka, and I thought we had you had a very interesting story to tell. So I'm going to read, actually, from your blog here. Let me find it a second, because I thought this was kind of fun, about your adventure. Uh, you have a blog on sailblogs.com, and it's Southern Cross DQQ. Anyway, the about. Rich is a lifelong sailor who sailed his previous boat, Sarita, a Beneteau 411 down the west coast of Mexico and Central America through the canal and up the western Caribbean to Savannah, Georgia. He's now eager to sail south and then west from California to explore the South Seas. He's an avid guitarist and loves to sing. Email address is, uh, you have your email address here, but anyway, Phil Quark is a life is a lifelong sailor who looks forward to sailing the South Pacific and hopefully further. He's an excellent saxophonist is learning the bass, and is working on his harmonies. Carol Quirk is the mother of three boys and has experience playing the classical piano. This sounds like a, a, a concert more than a sailing crew. <laughs> I mean, you all, all three of you have a passion for music, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we play aboard the boat, and we play whenever possible when we go ashore for the uh, cruiser parties. Okay. I once met a boat, uh, this is a Belgian boat in Europe, and the name of his boat was Piano. And it was Piano because it wasn't that big a boat, but they had a full-size piano down below. So his wife actually played for my daughters on their uh, on their birthday. We met him in in uh oh just off the just off the coast, the Pacific coast of Spain, and it was my daughter's birthday. This is back in 97. So that was kind of fun. I'd never been on a boat that actually had a sailboat that had a full-size piano on board. Anyway, so tell tell us about yourself. You say you've been a lifelong sailor, 
and uh, tell us how you got started in sailing. Well, I uh, grew up in Southern California, uh, northern San Diego County, and um, my dad had always wanted to have a sailboat. So uh, we he, he bought a, a small sailboat called a Victory 21, and we kept it in Oceanside Harbor, and we uh, joined the little yacht club there and sailed. We uh, participated in some of the local races they had off Oceanside Harbor, and and that's where I learned to sail. All right. So you've been a lifelong California resident then? Well, I was born in Ohio, actually, Columbus. But uh, our family moved out to San Diego when I was about eight years old. So I consider myself a Californian. When we talked yesterday, we had a, a very brief conversation on the phone. And you told me you're a retired physician, as is Richard, a retired physician. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. We actually met. Uh, I was in medical school here in um, Southern California, and he was uh, training in residency. He's a little older than me. And it turned out we both uh, shared uh, love of sailing and were both musicians. So uh, he had a little band going at that time. I joined the band, and we started sailing together, and uh, been doing that ever since. So did you participate, was it mainly cruising sailing, or what type of sailing did you do in Southern California? Was it racing sailing or cruising sailing? What was it? Yeah, we did um, a combination. I did uh, mostly cruising uh, until I joined, uh, I joined Balboa Yacht Club years ago and met some fellows who were avid racers, and there I learned to do some racing. Oh, the yacht club I hang out with uh, when I'm in Southern California then, up in Newport Beach? That's right, Newport Beach. Okay. Yeah, I've been on a lot of those as a Wednesday or Thursday night beer can series. Those, those are a lot of fun. Yeah, the beer can series is very fun. It's, uh, it's like a party on the water. <laughs> it is. It's a lot of fun. Uh, okay, so talk to us about what led you to buying your boat, what type of boat it is, uh, and your preparation for making the big jumps. Okay, well, uh, a lot of this is in the blog, too, but uh, basically um, I was facing retirement. This was in 20, 2015, I guess, and I was planning to retire in 2017, and <clears throat> I thought, well, I'm going to have a lot of time on my hands, and uh, I've always had this dream of sailing across the ocean after reading Joshua Slocum's book, you know. And so I called my friend Rich, who's he's the only person I knew well enough and was such a good sailor that I would do this with. And after checking with my wife to be sure it was okay with her, <laughs> we decided that, yeah, we're going to go ahead and, uh, and start looking for a blue water cruising sailboat. And um, we set out to look. Rich had to sell his uh, boat first. He had a Beneteau that he'd been sailing up and down Mexico and Central America for several years. Um, so he sold that, and we started looking for a blue water cruiser. Uh, so <clears throat> we wanted a, a real sturdy boat, safe boat, uh, and... We looked at a lot of design parameters and a lot of manufacturers, and 
we settled on, we wanted, decided we wanted a center cockpit uh, cutter rig boat. That, that was our, uh, what we decided would be the best for us with a combination of comfort and safety and some reasonable upwind performance. Uh, so we um, narrowed it down to several types, and it just happened that uh, the Hylus 46 uh, was one of our uh, choices, and there was one for sale in Ventura, which is not far from, from where we live in, in uh, Southern Cal. So we went up and took a look at it and um, met the owner. The original owner was an interesting fellow. He's an engineer, and he actually commissioned the boat in Taiwan and went and had some custom modifications made on it and had loaded it up with all the gear needed to sail safely and comfortably around the world, really. And he and his wife had sailed sailed the boat from uh, Ventura, California, down to South America, across to across the South Pacific to New Zealand and back up Hawaii and even up to Alaska. So they'd put a lot of miles on the boat and had really kind of fine-tuned it and rigged it up with all the gear for, for blue water sailing. So we decided that that was the boat for us. So we bought it. Where is it manufactured? I'm actually at a website of Hylus Yachts, and I don't see where it's manufactured. Of course, I haven't. It, Go ahead. It's uh, made in Taiwan by the uh, Queen Long Shipyard, and it has a reputation for being one of the most solidly built and well-designed uh, boats for this type of, of uh, blue water cruising. Yeah, they, they've got a pretty good reputation for, for boats, as I recall. My friend Jack Mahoney had, oh gosh, I'm trying to think of the name of the boat, but he had a boat built in Taiwan as you as well. Oh, it, it'll come to me during this podcast, but I can't remember the, the name of it off the top of my head. But, uh, yeah, it was a heavy-duty, well-built boat. Uh, I don't think they skimp on fiberglass there as much as they do in Europe. That's true. And, and the <clears throat> the interior, the woodwork, is really well done. It's beautiful teak uh, with nicely finished uh, cabinetry, and it's really a beautiful salon. Okay. So when you bought the boat, did you have to do any upgrades to it, or was it ready to go? Well, <clears throat> we um, we did uh, some modernization of the electronics. Um, we what did we do? We put a a four G radar and a new chart plotter, um, several other you know electronic modifications. Uh, a new GPS and a new EPIRB, those sort of things. But basically, it was ready to go. The rig, the sails were good. The rig was fine. We had it surveyed, and uh, all the surveyors said, no, this is a solid boat. The engine had, I think, 4,000 hours on it at that point. And we did some upgrades on the engine. We added a fuel flow meter and a pyrometer, and then just bought a bunch of spare parts basically that we we kept aboard mm -hmm. and we still have what's a pyrometer pyrometer measures the temperature of the uh, exhaust it's a turbocharged engine okay and uh, the pyrometer tells us if it's starting to overheat 
uh, from any problem, we can keep an eye on that. Okay, okay. Well, let's start out at the beginning of the trip. When did you leave and where did you go? Let's just, I've got my Google Earth open, and so I can sort of follow on as you travel through the, uh, through the, through your trip so far. Yeah, yeah, we, um, well, you know, once we got all our instruments, uh, musical instruments loaded up, we, (laughs) we loaded up the provisions and, um, uh, had a buddy of Rich's came with us for the initial cruise from Newport down to, um, Port of Vallarta, Mexico, just three of us. And, uh, we had a great cruise down there. It was um, good weather. I think we had one one small squall that hit us, and we learned how to shorten sail quickly and deal with that. So that was a good sail. And then once we were in Puerto Vallarta, uh, we started to meet other cruisers and decided we wanted to cruise up and down the coast of uh Mexico a little bit and explore that. Rich had done some of that on his boat in the past, but Carol and I wanted to experience that. So we we sailed south from Puerto Vallarta, stopping along the way. I think we got as far south as Zihuatanejo, a beautiful little Mexican town um, several hundred miles south of Puerto Vallarta. And then we uh, cruised back up that same coast, stopping at several little harbors along the way, and just enjoying that that beautiful coastline. Once we got back to Puerto Vallarta, we started preparations for the crossing the Pacific. We joined this rally called the Puddle Jump, and the rally organizers put this together to kind of aid first time, you know cruisers to deal with, make sure that they have all the information and proper equipment and understand what it involves. And, and they help us with the, um, the arrival. We, when we arrival at the, the Marquesas to get uh, the information on getting cleared in and all that. So, uh, we, we, uh, set off, I think it was March of 2017, uh, and sailed, straight across from Mexico to the Marquesas. So the three of you set across then? Well, this was, my wife didn't go. She uh, didn't want to deal with the three weeks at sea, but she flew to meet us when we got there. What I did was I invited a couple of my sailing buddies from Balboa Yacht Club that I knew very well. So it was me and Rich and these two guys from from the Yacht Club. Okay. Um so the three of you did that trip, that, and uh, were they musicians as well? No, uh, well, it was four <laughs> of us: me and Rich, and uh, Dick, and and uh, Grant. Um, <clears throat> so Rich and I would, you know, play our ukuleles and things a little bit, but they were just uh, um, more, uh, you know, they wanted to enjoy the cruising and helped a lot with little minor problems that occurred along the way. We had a whisker pole. Uh, extension break, so we had to take that apart, and a few minor things like that. Nothing major. Well, my understanding of that crossing is that is a very nice, as a general rule, non-eventful crossing. Was it th- that way for you? It was that way, actually. The you know that 
unexpectedly, we had a number of days with no wind at all. Uh, I think one we had one small squall that uh, nearby that gave us some 25 to 30 knot gusts we had to deal with, but uh, it was actually very pleasant crossing, except for a few days with no wind, which is no fun for a sailor, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you get impatient and start the engine? We did for a few days, yes. <laughs> I would. Uh, That's what I would be doing. Yes. Although it was, we had a good sail. Um, the previous owner had equipped this boat with a sail called a <clears throat> Code Zero, which is just a, a very large Genoa uh, lightweight material that's made to uh, take up to about 16 or 17 knots of wind. So when the wind got down to, you know, six, seven, eight knots, we'd put the Code Zero up, and that would move us along pretty nicely. Okay, okay. Hey, do you know, I'm just, from uh, one of my good friends out of the Balboa Yacht Club is is a guy named Bud Elam. Do you know him? Mm, no, it doesn't sound familiar, no. Okay, okay. And Craig Reynolds, he was a Commodore for a while. Do you, did you know him? Oh, yeah, I knew Craig. Yeah, he had a book called Bolt. Bolt, yep, I sailed on Bolt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he, yeah, he was a big racer, uh, good guy. Yeah, yeah, fun guy, really fun guy. Yeah, okay, so I'm just curious if you knew them. Because Bud's actually been on the podcast before because he was the, uh, he put together the, the for the Transpac, he's done the Transpac with Craig several times, and he's he's always been in charge of being the chef. And so we talked about provisioning the boat for the Transpac. So he's been on the podcast from the Balboa Yacht Club as well. So that's cool. Yeah. So, okay, so you get over to the Marquesas. Let me get over and zoom into the Marquesas. Your wife flew in and joined you there? Yeah, we. Uh, our first landfall was at Nukuhiva, uh, which is one of the islands there that you can clear in at. <clears throat> And she she flew in and joined us there. And we sailed from, uh, well, we, we uh, spent some time in Nukuhiva, <clears throat> just exploring inland a little bit and getting used to being in the South Pacific and got introduced a little bit to South Pacific culture. Uh, we learned about the Fakaletes, which are the, the men that kind of, they're kind of transgender men <clears throat> that act as... Uh, uh, hospitality people and uh, in a lot of the hotels. And it's a very accepted uh, role in society there. Okay. And I got a I got a tattoo there just to commemorate my crossing, just <laughs> a small on the arm. <laughs> okay. And then uh, when Carol got aboard, we set off for uh, the island of Fatuhiva, which we had heard was just a beautiful island. Uh, it's about, I think, a two-day overnight sail <clears throat> to Fatuhiva. Didn't Thor Heyerdahl actually write a book called Fatuhiva? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's a beautiful island. It's just stunningly beautiful, almost like, a, uh, well, reminded me a lot of uh, the Nepali coast of Hawaii with these uh, sheer cliffs coming down to the water and lush tropical vegetation. Yeah, so we uh, we now now was what I noticed when I sailed in Tahiti is is they're beautiful tall islands, but the anchorages are very deep. Was that the case in Fatuhiva as well? Yes, that was the case in Fatuhiva. Um, 
there was a small the hold 10 to maybe 15 boats the maximum luckily uh it wasn't crowded when we were there okay you cut out but, on yeah, Sky, you cut out on Skype for a second you said I, the tell tell me where you anchored and what it was like so, so just back up a little bit Yeah, we anchored at the harbor at Fatu Hiva. There's really only one one anchorage there that's suitable for for uh, safety. And we I forget the depth. I think it was probably 40, 45 feet, not too deep, but it wasn't like a, a shallow, sandy anchorage. Nevertheless, we, we had a good, solid anchor, and uh, we met some, a lot of other cruisers there that had been there multiple times and they sort of gave us the lay of the land and uh, we went ashore and explored that island. The interior of the island is just markedly beautiful. Yeah, I'm looking at Fatuhiva. It looks like it's a little town called Hanavevi. Is that H-A-N-A-V-A-V-E? It looks like that's where some boats are anchored off there. Is that's it? right. Okay. Okay. And there's a little tiny protected harbor in there for small fishing boats, but uh, all the other boats have to anchor just off outside the village, it looks like. That's right. Okay. Did you, how did you, did you, you did you take an interior trip on the, on the island? And was there, uh, did you rent a car? Did you hire somebody to drive you around? How did that work out? Yeah, that was interesting. Uh, we went ashore and they had a little kind of a hospitality uh, shed there where, there was a, a person who kind of greeted the cruisers and gave us information how to, you know, get uh, SIM cards and get oriented to living on the island. And then we asked her uh, to recommend a guide, one to explore the interior. So she said, "You need you need this guy named Pisa." So he she called him, and we met him the next day. We were at the uh, little gas station there near the harbor because that's where he said he would meet us. And this four-wheel drive truck pulls up, and this huge Polynesian guy with a boar, wild boar tooth necklace steps out of this truck. And we got we thought, whoa, what are we getting into here? But he turned out to be the nicest guy in the world. <laughs> and he was a native there. He had you know lived his whole life there. And he knew everyone on the island. Every time we drove around with him, people would wave at him, and he'd stop and chat for a while. So it was it was really fun. He showed us he showed us all the the best places to see in the island, and we had a nice true Polynesian meal there, that which I had never really experienced the the true Polynesian cooking in that way. It was it was delicious. So describe true Polynesian cooking. What do you remember about it? Well, let's see. Uh, they had um, uh, pork curry, uh, the best curry I've ever had. Uh, fish, um, like a ceviche-type uh, fish with coconut that was very tasty. Um, a lot of fresh fruit and... Um, Goat curry also. Hmm. Okay. What about breadfruit and um, what is it, taro taro or any of that stuff? Yeah, they Kui did have that. Yeah. And it was uh, 
they had taro and uh, breadfruit uh, that were prepared just in a very delicious way. I had had that before and wasn't impressed, but the way they, they make it in Polynesia, it's, it's really good. Okay, yeah, I'm looking at these pictures on Google Earth, and it's just a spectacular backdrop in that anchorage. I mean, it just rises straight up after the beach ends and is green and super green and just gorgeous. And it looks like there's always quite a few sailors in that little harbor there. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's uh, uh, many cruisers say it's the most beautiful harbor they've been, and they've been around the world. So I was impressed. How long did you stay there? Let's see. I think we stayed there almost 10 days. You know, we were kind of eager to get along. We wanted to, to get to Tahiti and uh, the Tuamotus and get through the South Pacific while the weather season was good, you know. what? Yeah, describe the weather pattern. I've heard it before, but refresh our memories on what what the what the weather patterns are like in the South Pacific, if you can remember. Yeah, as I recall, the the, the best time to cross is during uh, the summertime, what we would call the Northern Hemisphere summer, which you know you're on the other side of the equator when you're in Tahiti, so it's winter there, and that's when the cyclone uh, the, the hurricanes are less frequent. Did you use a weather passage router or anything like that? Yes, we did. We used, um, it's called Predict Wind. Okay. <clears throat> and they were very helpful. Uh, you know, we, we, down, we would download their, um, their uh, you know, um, what do they call it, the grid uh, through our sat phone. Mm-hmm. The GRIB files, GRIB files, the GRIB files, yep. That's right, GRIB files. And they turned out to be actually quite accurate. I mean, locally there can be squalls and changes in the wind around islands that they obviously can't predict. But uh, we were mainly concerned with, you know, avoiding storms and hurricanes. So it was reassuring to have that GRIB to look at every day. Okay, okay. So, yeah, I've heard very good things about passage weather, so that's that's interesting that you use that as well. Okay. So from uh, Fatuhiva, you spend about 10 days there, and uh, it looks like, yeah, like you say, that's about the only harbor on the island. The other side of the island looks fairly, very, I would say, exposed. looks like the predominant winds are from the, uh, from the northeast then. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, this... I think this was really the only, uh, the safest harbor on the island. But we were eager to get along um, towards Tahiti. So we set out, uh, and between Marquesas and Tahiti, there's a group of atolls called the Tuamotus. Mm-hmm. And there must be a dozen separate little uh, atolls, uh, you know, ringed with uh, coral uh and have, usually have one or two passages to get inside. And this was our first experience with that type of of sailing. So we were a little nervous about going through these passages. We had heard that they can get uh, strong currents through there, and sometimes standing waves build up uh, that can be a problem. But we were lucky. We we uh, 
made it to, uh, I think, two or three of the atolls and had great time. Once you get inside, it's very calm, and you anchor and get in the dinghy, and we did a lot of diving, scuba, and free diving. Beautiful, beautiful reefs and fish there. Yeah, I see these. There's a whole bunch of islands between French Polynesia that you're you're going to be going right through. And that used to be something before pinpoint navigation that everybody was always worried about back in the day of celestial navigation because you never knew exactly where you were. So a lot of boats have been lost to those atolls. So, yeah. Yeah. They used to have a nickname. I think they were nicknamed the Dangerous Isles or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you can see why. Is lots of lots of reefs, lots of reefs. Do you have any specific memories of anyone you visited? Um, yeah, in fact, um, the most interesting experience we had there was um, I forget the name of the atoll to be honest with you, but uh, it was very sparsely inhabited. Uh, we anchored and went ashore. Uh, There was a little town that um, had, uh, you know, one church and a couple of stores. And uh, we passed by a church. This was during the daytime. And there were a group of ladies in there dancing. They had a a, uh, recording going, and they were were doing Polynesian dancing. And we asked, you know, what is this? Is there some festival coming? And they said, yeah, the Haeva Festival is coming up in June. <clears throat> this is a Polynesian festival they have in Tahiti every year where people from all the surrounding islands come and participate in sports and dancing and festivities for several days. And we ended up um, enjoying that when we got to Tahiti. But the other thing that happened in that atoll was <clears throat> we had heard of this place called the Coco Pearl Lodge, a small, like, boutique hotel. So we called him up and, and uh, said, and we'd like to come over to your lodge and, you know, maybe have a drink or dinner. And, uh, and they said, well, as it turns out, we've got one bungalow open if you'd like to stay the night. So they picked us up in their, <clears throat> in their launch and took us over, and it was just a, a real amazing little place. With uh, the, the hosts were very warm, and, and the food was excellent. And we met some interesting people that were on vacation there. And then he took us to a pearl farm. <clears throat> that that uh, atoll is famous for raising uh, oysters, pearl oysters. Hmm. And it was really interesting to, to uh, visit this uh, oyster harvesting operation and see how they actually uh, seed the oysters and then put them back in and and then pull them back out when the pearls are grown and uh the whole process was was fascinating. Okay, I'm I zoomed in on what is called Coco C O C O P E R L E Lodge, and yep. uh, okay, I can see that that's a a huge little I mean circular lagoon with it looks like one entrance on the northwest side of that, and maybe another one on the uh, south side with a, an airport on the island. Interesting. That looks like an extremely protected anchorage once you get inside that. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it felt good to be inside there. However, 
many of these atolls are littered with uh, coral heads up close to the surface. So they've marked the uh, safe channels with big markers. And as long as you stay within the marked channels, you're fine. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm zooming in on that. And then, yeah, I can see all these other barrier reef, you know, barrier islands too around that. There's another one just to the west called Manihi as well. And this one is called Ahi, A-H-E, where Cocopera Lodge is located at. Okay. All right. So continue on there. Where where was your landfall when you got to Tahiti? Was it uh, um, Papiete or was it Rayatea? Where did you make your landfall? Yeah, we went we went straight to Papiete. Uh, we wanted to. Uh, we knew we wanted to stay there for a couple of weeks at least, and we'd heard about this festival, so we went to Papiete and uh, got a spot in the the marina there near town as a medmore. We had never medmoored before, but the the guys at the marina were very helpful, and it was not a problem. It was very calm water and no wind, so we uh, it turned out the spot they gave us was right across the dock from a group of these huge super yachts that apparently spend the season there. And I mean, these were amazing, you know, over 100-foot some were sail, and most were motor yachts. And they all had crew that, you know, professional crew that stayed on the, the yachts and, you know, kept them clean and uh, then would get the yacht prepared for the owner when the owner came. And we met a few of these people that were professional crew for these super yachts and had some barbecues and played some music with them. It was very fun. Yeah, so they must not have much of a of a tide or a tidal... Uh, a tide if you med more because that's why you don't see med moors in the United States because they have too high of a tide. So there not, must not be much of a tide in T- Tahiti then. I think that's true for, yeah, I think that's true for most of the South Pacific. The tides are fairly small. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I'm zooming in on Papiete and there is a big uh, a picture of a, a huge, huge one, two, three, four, five, six level mega yacht there. <laughs> I mean, this picture, yeah. So I can know, but, see exactly where you're talking about, where you med-moored there. But the most fun was, was going to this Haiva festival. And that part of it was uh, like a big stadium where they had <clears throat> dance groups from all different islands in French Polynesia would come and, and put on their best show and with the traditional Tahitian music, drums and things. <clears throat> and part of it was a uh, Polynesian sports competition uh, at several venues around Papeete, parks and things, they would have uh, events like coconut tree climbing, uh, rock lifting. These people would lift these huge rocks. The idea was to lift it up and get it on your shoulder for two seconds. You had to hold it for two seconds, then you could drop it. And these people were amazing. Uh, and then we they had... Um, the spear throwing contest where they had these javelins and they would throw them at a coconut that was suspended about 50 feet in the air and amazingly accurate. And then there was a traditional um, dancing festival in one of the venues where they kind of told the story of the ancient Polynesian Kings and all the costumes and things. And it was, 
It was really a very interesting festival. Okay. Aiva. Aiva. Okay. So did uh, so you? How long did you stay there? Now, what, at what point did your wife join you in the Marquesas? Then. Yeah, she joined us in the Marquesas and stayed with us all the way through Tuamotos to Tahiti, and then on to. Uh, we ended up in uh, Tonga. Uh, we, we went first. We spent some time in, uh, you know, in Tahiti and then uh, Morea and Bora Bora. Uh, we played some music ashore at some of the little clubs there and uh, met some cruisers and just really enjoyed. Especially uh, Morea is, is a beautiful island with with pristine anchorages. Very few boats were there at that time. And the nice thing about it was you could go ashore in your dinghy, and there were excellent restaurants all along the shore. <laughs> so we didn't have to cook too much. <laughs> okay. So now it's the, the three of you on the boat at this point in time, right? That's right. Okay. So so did you get out to Raiatea and Huahini as well? Uh, I think we went to Raiatea briefly, not Huahini. I don't think we went to Huahini. Okay. So you headed up that yeah. way, okay? Um, okay, so from, from French Polynesia, you headed directly to Tonga, or no? You spent a little more time in the French Polynesian islands, and then where did you go from there? From there, we went on to uh, Rarotonga. Okay, it's a small island, uh, uh, sort of halfway between Tahiti and Tonga. Okay, yeah, I'm zooming in on that right now. Yeah, it looks, uh, that's the, in the Cook Islands then. Rarotonga is part that's of the right. Cook Islands. Okay. Uh, at this point in time, um, you're probably starting to run into a few Aus- uh, um, New Zealand sailors. <coughs> Kiwis, that's I was going to say Aussies, but I mean Kiwi sailors. Is that correct? That's correct. Because yeah, this is a sort of... Meet- this is sort of their back, their their backyard when you get up to these areas: Fiji, uh, Tonga, right, uh, Rarotonga. That's uh, that's where they tend to sail quite a bit. That's right. We did we did start to meet uh, people from those areas. Apparently, Rarotonga is a vacation area for the Kiwis uh, during their winter. They like to come up to Rarotonga where the weather's better. Okay. Okay. So I'm looking at this. It looks like it's fringed by a barrier reef. Uh, where was the anchorage then? Was it on the... I see there's a couple anchorages on the island, but it looks like mostly on the uh, the west side of the island. Is that correct? Well, we actually stayed in a little harbor there. There's one harbor uh, with a, a concrete wall uh, for cruisers to tie up to, uh, which turned out to be a little bit of a problem. We didn't understand it. We had heard that there was quite a bit of surge in the harbor. And it turned out that there was a lot of surge in that harbor. And it caused a problem for us at one point. We, uh, the, the way you tie up to this concrete wall is you put your anchor out and then back down to the wall. And then you throw a line ashore and they tie your line to these huge bollards on on the top of the concrete wall. Well, it turns out there are four or five other boats 
tied that way. And all the lines were kind of crossed over and uh, would, would dip down into the water and shoot back up with each surge. So to get ashore, you had to get in your dinghy and navigate through this massive lines that were jumping up and down and get to this little ladder to climb up the seawall. So we, we got used to that after a while, but one one night we were out visiting some dance performance and we had tied our dinghy up to the uh, metal ladder and we got back and we saw that our motor was gone from the back of the dinghy. Mm. And we thought, oh, my goodness, someone's stolen our motor. And we were all getting angry. And then one of the cruisers yelled at us from his boat. And he says, hey, is that your dinghy? One of the ropes caught underneath the motor and flipped it right off, and it sank right down here to the bottom of the harbor. Oh, my goodness. He said, but it just happened. There was a guy scuba diving underneath one of the boats. And we asked him to go put a rope around it. And we pulled it up, and here it is, right on the back of my boat right here. <laughs> That's nice. So we rescued the motor and took it in, and the, there was a mechanic ashore that resurrected it for us, and we learned a lesson from that. Yeah, I have doused my dinghy motor one time, and quite honestly, it's never ran the same <laughs> since then. <laughs> but you guys got yours working back again then, huh? We got it. We got it. Uh, fixed up right away. And the guy told us, he said, it's good that you brought it in right away. He says, what happens is that people, when they dunk their motor, they pull it up and they let it sit for a couple of days till they can find uh, a mechanic. And he says, that's when the corrosion happens, when it's sitting out of the water, not in the water. He says, it's better to leave it, if you can't get it repaired right away, leave it underwater. Hmm. That was his advice anyway. Yeah. But he did get it running for us, and it, it has run fine ever since. Yeah, actually, this year I, I went on to eBay and bought a spare carburetor for my dinghy motor just because I figured, well, I know what the problem is. I think the carburetor got some some corrosion. And uh, and even though I can get it to start, it doesn't run like it used to. And I thought, well, let's just replace the carburetor. That's easy enough to do. Not much else can go wrong with them. So at least on mine. Mine's a little uh, two-and-a-half-horsepower yeah. dinghy motor. So I can see where you were tied up. I can It's on the north end uh, of the island, and I can see that concrete wall that you tied up on. It looks like that's a little bit of a commercial harbor right there. Not much, but that's just right. a little bit of one. Okay. With a fairly small town around it. And, uh, and it looks like there's a, a road that goes all the way around the island near, near the coast. Did you get out and explore the island by land much? Yeah, we did. We uh, we rented a car. By this time, we had met uh, several other cruisers, and uh, we got together and rented a car and drove around and saw some of the sites. There were some beautiful uh, caves leading down, down to the water um, and with pools to swim in and that sort of thing. And so yeah, it was it was really a beautiful island. We had a good time there. We met uh, actually a, a big powerboat cruiser there uh, who had an all-girl crew aboard. Um, nothing funny going on. He was a really nice guy. He just happened to he, he gets crew through this Find a Crew website, mm-hmm. 
and it just happened these girls wanted to sail around and and so uh, one of them was actually a dive master and she helped uh, repair some of the moorings in the in the uh, harbor there and my wife enjoyed that because she needed some female company so we had some parties and dinners aboard their boat and played some music of course so what kind of music do you enjoy well i i uh grew up playing saxophone so sax players naturally gravitate to jazz okay and so i that's that's my my true love but uh for playing in in bands commercially and college and med school and things uh, most people want to hear like classic rock and you know soft rock and more of the softer jazz so that's what i ended up playing with when i was in the band with rich okay okay how many people how big a band was it was it a trio uh four people what was it Quartet? usually just four people okay um yeah sometimes five drum bass uh, two guitars and me, and occasionally we'd have a keyboard guy sit in, that sort of thing. Okay. Okay. Well, it sounds like you're uh, you're having a good time playing music through the South Pacific. From Rarotonga, where did you head then? Well, then we headed on to, to Tonga. Now, t let t let's um, talk about bureaucracy. Was it very difficult clearing in and clearing out of these these islands? Not really, no. Uh you know, once you once you found the right office, sometimes it was a little tricky to find the office. And then oftentimes it would be a holiday or a Friday afternoon, they're gone, that sort of thing. So, but we would just wait till the next day. We never had any hassles about going ashore, uh, you know, t to get cleared in, even though we, we hadn't officially, you know, cleared in. We could go ashore and eat at a restaurant. Nobody, you know, said anything, so... Uh, we didn't have any trouble in in the South Pacific. It was it was pretty easy. Okay, did so you head on over to Tonga, and uh, now these are these are lower islands. Tonga's the Tonga Islands are more more low. I mean, they're lower. They're not volcanic islands as much, are they? That's right. I mean, I think they're volcanic originally, but they're so old that they've sunk down. So the peaks are not, you know, as high as steep as uh, the Marquesas. Okay. And Tonga is known for the whale migration. The, the humpbacks uh, tend to come there and and uh, have their babies, and so there's a big whale watching kind of industry there uh, to take tourists out. And so we did that, and we uh, were lucky enough. We uh, encounter we we jump in the water. The, the drivers of the boat knew where the whales were hanging out, so we'd go over there and we jump in the water with our snorkels on and just observed these huge animals fairly close range and one of them had a, a fairly newborn uh, calf that was hanging out and we just were fascinated to to float in the water there and this this newborn calf would come up to the surface for a breath and look at us with the eye they call it spying mm -hmm. and just kind of checking us out wasn't afraid uh, it was just kind of a magical experience to be that close to these these beautiful animals. 
Okay, it looks like the main town there is Nuku'alofa. Is that right? That's right. Okay. Uh, well, let's see. There's two towns. One is in the south of the chain of islands. I think that southern town is Nuku'alofa. We were more up toward the northern end of the chain. I can't remember the name of the town. Uh, but okay. Nuku'alofa is more of a busy commercial town, and this town up at the northern end is uh, very much nicer for cruisers, a smaller town with a very well-protected harbor. Okay. Okay. I'm looking up farther north. There's a lot of islands in the Tonga Islands, it looks like. It's good. good. Right. It covers quite an area. Foa Island, possibly, or... Ah, here it is. Pangi. P-A-N-G-A-I. Does that sound correct? That might be it. No, okay. I can't remember the name of it right now. But Don't worry about it. Okay. So, Tonga, did you get over to Fiji as well? Well, well, then what happened was we were getting towards the end of the safe season. I think this was already October or so. So we wanted to get out of the hurricane zone. Uh, so we, wanted, we decided we were going to sail to uh, New Zealand. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> which would, you know, we estimated to be about a 10-day sail. Mm-hmm. Um, and turns out there's a reef, there's a, a uh, small reef about 200 miles south of Tonga called Minerva Reef where the cruisers stop uh, to rest or wait for a weather window, that sort of thing. Hmm. So that's what we did. We took off and went to Minerva Reef. And uh, it turns out it's a good thing we did because while we were there, a storm came through right across the path that we would have been on heading to New Zealand. Okay, so I'm zooming in on Minerva Reefs, and it's just out in the middle of nowhere. Is that right? Yeah, it's it's kind of bizarre, because as you approach it, you can't see the land elevation. It's quite low to the water. But you see these whole group of boats just anchored, stopped, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And then when you get closer, you realize they're inside the the reef and anchored inside. Okay, yeah. It doesn't really look like an island, but there's little coral heads poking up around there. Is that right? It, well, it's a ring. It's a ring type atoll. Oh, there it is. I zoomed it more. Now I can see what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. So you went inside into the lagoon. Then is that where the passage is on the northeast side into the lagoon? That's right. I think there's two. There's South Minerva Reef, and I think there's a North Minerva Reef. Something like okay. that. I, I can't remember which one we were at. I think we were at the larger one. Okay. So you just sat there and wait then, huh? You and the other sailors waiting for a weather window. Yeah, yeah. And it was very nice, you know, calm, uh, of course, calm water inside and um, the uh, nice sandy bottom. We snorkeled around and kept watching the weather. And uh, after that storm passed, it looked like a good window. So we took off for New Zealand. Okay. And where did you land in New Zealand? Did you go to the Bay of Islands? The northern part? Exactly. Yep, Bay of Islands, a little town called Opua. Mm-hmm. It's where my friend Doug Schmuck has his boatyard there. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful that, town, and yeah, Bay that, of Islands is gorgeous. That is gorgeous there. So, yeah, you probably stayed in that main marina in Opua? 
That's right. The main marina there, and and of course found some places we could play music ashore. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I spent some time there in in February this year. I was down there in February. My friend Doug Schmuck, who was from Newport Beach, California, sailed his boat, which is just like mine, a Bristol Channel cutter, down to uh, Bay of Islands and. He moved down there. Never left. That's where he's at now. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah. I can gorgeous. see why he would want to stay there. That Beautiful is, spot. That is a gorgeous area. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Okay. So, how? So did you spend a lot of time then in the Bay of Islands? Yeah. Well, actually, we stayed the whole um, winter. Well, their summer uh, down there. Uh did you stay on the boat, or did you put the boat up and fly home, or how did you deal with that? Yeah, we just stayed on the boat. Um, actually, Carol and I flew back to the States, you know, to be with family and stuff, because uh, we weren't really ready to head back to the South Pacific until the next March or April or so. Okay. Um so yeah, Rich stayed on the boat, just lived full time in the in the harbor there, and you know met a lot of other musicians around the area, and uh, had a great time there. Did did and he? Carol and I flew back. Did he go on anchor, or did he stay in the marina? Because there's lots of places just to anchor, you know, Pua. Yeah, no, we um, we we stayed in the marina. We had heard some stories about weather that can come through there kind of unexpectedly, and several of the boats, I guess, the previous season had uh, gotten loose of their mooring and had problems. So we didn't really feel comfortable uh, being out where that weather might be a problem. So we wanted to stay in the marina. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So from that marina, if you go out, you go in and go to the main driveway, you know, road that goes out, and you'll come up to that little store, that uh, probably did a little bit of grocery shopping at. That's about the only little store there. If you follow the shoreline around, uh, you there's a walkway right along the, the beach there, which you might have taken, and you would draw, walk up, and you would have seen an A-framed building, a red A-frame building with a marine railroad that got, went down into the water, and that's uh, where Doug bought that boatyard. Doug's Opua Boatyard. Oh, Okay. Yeah, that might be near. Is that near the ferry landing? There's a ferry. Yeah, that yeah, goes the ferry landing. There. So you just continue on the ferry landing, going a little bit farther north, just around the corner, just around that next little bay up there, and that's his boatyard right there. And there's a dock nice. that, that heads spot. out there. Yeah, yeah, he's been fighting to keep that for years. The government keeps trying to take that little spot away from him, but he's been able to hold on to it so far. But uh, yeah. Beautiful area. I went down there and I said I could uh, I could retire down here very easily because yep. there's so many cruising areas around the Bay of Islands. We went out cruising for a day on his boat. Some of the islands out there. It was just just beautiful, beautiful water, beautiful weather. So you spent the season there then. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop right here for this first podcast, and then we're gonna continue on talking, and we'll bring that back for a, for a second episode. So hold on just a second.
Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing. Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f***. What the f*** gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. <laughs> 